The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. All right. Good morning, church. Welcome. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, For those that don't know, I'm Shay Haddock. Glad to be here, and I'm glad that you are here. Want to welcome those online as well. So last week, we talked about passion, uh, and we are going to talk this week about passion as well, but going to be in a much different context. We're going to talk about King Solomon, and we're going to cover a lot of ground in Scripture. Uh, Don't expect you to follow along with me throughout uh, 12 books of the Bible, sorry, 12 chapters of the Bible here, but I'm definitely going to summarize several chapters for you. I'm going to do some storytelling I'm going to tell you where you really need to pay attention and read your Bible and get get it out. Otherwise, just sit back and bear with me and and listen as as we hear from the Lord what I feel like he has for us today. So King Solomon, uh, you guys probably are well uh, familiar, the son of King David, and is quite an interesting individual, and in fact... There is much to know about him, but actually lived a very short life. He only lived about 40 years. 20 of that, he was the king of Israel. And it's both amazing and completely tragic when you listen to the, and you read and you study about the life of Solomon. And so, I have no idea if this message is going to be extremely encouraging or highly fearful for you, but it really doesn't matter to me. I want you to listen to the Lord uh, as I am. So let's dive in. So Solomon starts out uh, his life. He's, of course, the son of King David, and David, obviously, we know, had his fair share of struggles. David fell into a, 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 a sin of adultery. He engaged in, in, in relations with Bathsheba. He lusted upon her. In fact, that's indeed how Solomon was conceived. Uh, the difference, though, and we'll see this, is David, of course, was known. His legacy was that he was a man after God's own heart. David had a mighty reign as king. He slayed Goliath as a young boy and went on to to be this great reigning and ruling king. But he definitely had his uh, sin issues with with his sexual desires and his tendencies. And unfortunately, that was passed on to his son Solomon. But before we get there, I want to talk about the beginning of, of Solomon's greatness. So uh, I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, okay? 1 Kings chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'm going to summarize chapter 1 and 2. So Adonijah is, sets himself up to try to usurp the throne before Solomon. This is after David has died. And David uh, blesses Solomon. And he's, he, he, he promises him that God has given him the kingdom uh, and that he is going to, to be fruitful. And, uh, and so, uh, but Adonijah tries to usurp the throne. It doesn't end up working in chapter one. David gives the throne uh, to Solomon in, in chapter two. 
And, um, and so anyway, we find ourselves in chapter 3. So David is a young man in his 20s, early 20s probably here, and God comes to him. Okay, we're going to start uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Solomon made an alliance, again, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. So he marries the Pharaoh's daughter. This is kind of the beginning of greatness for Solomon. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord. We'll get into some of those details about the building of the temple and the building of his palace and why they're important. And the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Now listen to this, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon wisely answers, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on his throne this very day, speaking of himself. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm but a child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you've chosen, a great people, too numerous, numerous, I'm sorry, numerous to count or number. So give your servant, this is his request, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong or administer justice. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. This is what God says he will do. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime there will be no equal among kings. And here's the big if. If you walk in obedience to me, and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So God promises to give him a long life, but it's contingent upon him walking in accordance to the obedience that God has asked of him. We have the fortune of knowing King Solomon did not live a long life. And there's a reason for that. I'll, I'll skip forward. I want you to turn to chapter 8. I want you to turn to chapter 8, and I'm going to summarize here 
the uprising of Solomon. So Solomon is in a healthy place. He's newly king of Israel. He's the son of famous King David. He is on the up and up. Life could not be getting any better. Literally, the Lord visits him personally in a dream. I don't know what other high point a man could be in in his relationship with God other than for God himself to visit him. Things are going well for Solomon. He, he, and at the end of uh, chapter 3, he judges wisely in this bizarre story about these two prostitute women who both conceive children and they're uh, claiming when they were sleeping, uh, one of the babies got killed and they're both pointing the finger at each other and, the, and Solomon judges wisely between the two and he says, well, it, it, you know, why don't we just um, cut the baby up and split it in two and, and you have half, you, this half and you have this half. And the first of the two women says, by all means, that is my child and you could give it to her because I don't want my baby to die, right? And the other one says, by all means, let's split it right down the middle, fair and square. Cut that baby in half and I'll take one half, right? And Solomon says, oh my, it's pretty obvious whose baby it is. It's the first lady. And so he gives the woman her baby, right? He settles it. But the people were amazed at the simplicity of his judgment and his wisdom. God gave him wisdom and favor before the people to judge wisely. But that's kind of a bizarre story there in chapter 3. And he uh, is just gaining favor uh, with the people of the nation and also with neighboring countries. And in chapter 4, we start to read about his officials and his, and his governance. So he starts to set up this tremendously elaborate kingdom. And I, I wanted to read a few of these things to you. He's, he's really living large. And in, in the middle of chapter 4, it says that these were his daily provisions. And, and just bear with me. You don't have to turn with me there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through some of these to summarize. His daily provisions were 10 head of stall-fed cattle. So these are nice, fat cows. Like, they're just in a stall, grain-fed, like ribeye city, right? 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 pastured cattle. So those high-end, like, grass-fed beef, right? Uh, he's got 20 of those daily. 100 sheep and goats. And it also says immeasurable deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. Yeah, King Solomon also had a little taste for some choice game. Uh, I like that about the guy. He's a likable guy. He had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses. 4,000! Like, I'm in real estate. I've sold an equine facility before with, that had 20 stalls, three horses in each stall. So that's 60 horses. And this was a place. Like, this was like a horse place, right? He had 4,000 stalls, 12,000 horses for all of his chariots, and he had an entire crew of people daily bringing barley and straw, providing for the animals. And these were the district governors that were uh, appointing all of these resources just to feed his chariot horses. 
12,000. It says later in the scriptures, he had cities of animals. Like literally cities. I mean, 12,000. I, I, I was, I, Molly and I own a farm in Atchison, Kansas. Some people in this church are from there. There's 10,000 people in the city of Atchison. He had 12,000 horses, okay? So he had cities. It's amazing. It's fascinating. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, the scripture tells us. He wrote and sang sp- precisely 1,005 songs. That's a lot, huh, Sean? <laughs> 1,005 songs. He became an expert in zoology. And he, he actually is who we, um, Adam, of course, named uh, all the animals, but uh, much of the expertise in the animal kingdom that we attribute scientifically today actually comes from Solomon and also an expert in botany. All nations of the world sent their kings to listen to him. Every nation, the surrounding countries and all over the world had heard about Solomon. I mean, this was an amazing dude. I mean, just endless. Uh, no, there's never been anyone like him, not even close. He made strategic trade deals with neighboring nations as, so that he could select choice materials as he began fulfilling the vision and mission that God had for him to build the temple. Hiram of Tyre and Sidon, he was the king of Tyre, uh, he says, Solomon said that he, there's nobody like, uh, there's no other uh, wood, wood fellers like the Sidonians. And so he went and struck a deal with Hiram so he could use the choicest wood on planet earth to begin constructing the temple. So in chapters five and six, the building of the temple begins. And so, man, Solomon is just, he's, he's rising. He's already risen to the top. He is at the top of his reign. And the project begins 480 years after the Exodus, okay? So the temple is, it, Solomon begins building the temple 480 years after Moses leads them through the Red Sea, okay? That gives you a little bit of a timeline. That's quite a long time. And this was only Solomon's fourth year as king. Listen to the team that he put together. And this is in chapters five and six. Again, I'm summarizing. But listen to this team, man. I'm inspired by the leadership here because I have a hard time running the youth group at OPCC. Uh, Listen to what this guy did. 30,000 Israelites that he had called to, to, to labor daily for the project, which, by the way, took seven years to build the temple. So 30,000 Israelites. He had 70,000 mixed bag of workers from other nations, 70,000 carriers. These people's job was literally to carry wood, stone, gold, whatever was used to build the temple. 70,000. He sucked these people. How do you, I mean, I can hardly convince a few people to serve Wednesday nights a youth group, this guy convinced these people to lay their lives down for seven years to carry wood. 70,000 people. 80,000 stonecutters. 80,000 people that all they did was cut choice stone for the house of the Lord. He, led th- he, he, he had a team of leadership, the Bible describes. There's, it says there were 3,300 foremen that were under his charge. And these 3,300 foremen were responsible for all of these people. Like, man, 
That is like, I, I cannot imagine, I can't possibly fathom how he organized that. This is, several, this is over a couple thousand years ago, right? And so it's like, to think about even doing that today is mind-blowing, let alone the time that he did it in. So I want to give you some perspective here. But in chapter 7, I know I told you to go to chapter 8, bear with me, but chapter 7, verse 1 it does say this, and I caught this when I was reading. So, in, sorry, at the end of verse, um, at the end of chapter six, in the thirty-eighth verse, it says at the very end that he spent seven years building the temple. Then there's this little nugget the Lord throws in there, it's chapter seven, verse one. It took Solomon thirteen years, however. That's an important, however to complete the construction of his palace. So he spent seven years building the temple of the Lord, the most amazing structure on planet earth to date, the house of the Lord, the one that God had promised, had over 100,000 men, 3,300 foremen. It was just gold, precious stones, silver, acacia wood, olive wood, the cedars of Lebanon, everything. The, The king Hiram, the king of Tyre, said that he would devote every person of his tribe to floating logs down the sea so they could get it down to Israel to build this temple. He had organized such a thing, but his fall, I actually (laughs) felt in my heart, man, maybe in verse one is where it kind of started to fall down for him. He took twice as long to build his own palace as he did that of the temple. But nonetheless, Verse, I'm sorry, chapter seven, he goes on, he furnishes the temple, and you can read all this for yourself, but he adorns this temple. And I was gonna put up a picture and stuff, but um, I wasn't even sure I was gonna preach this until late last night. The, he, he ador- you can look it up, Solomon's temple. He adorns this thing, gold on everything. There wasn't anything he didn't put gold and a precious stone on. <clears throat> and, um, but then in, in chapter Eight. He brings the ark into the temple, and of course, this is the famous ark that, that Moses and the Levites carried through the wilderness with the acacia wood, right, with the long poles and the cherub angels where the Spirit of God dwelt among them in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Nod your head if you know what I'm talking about, the Ark of the Covenant. He puts this same ark, this is 480 years Later, so good job, Israelites, keeping up with that thing. I mean, I can't keep my socks straight. I lose socks after I bought a month. And they, so nonetheless, they, uh, the most important uh, piece of memorabilia to them, they, they, he places the ark in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil. And when he steps out, boom, the Spirit of God fills the place. The scriptures say the spirit of God rests on the holy of holies in the ark of the covenant that's that's in the temple that he built. And listen to this. I want you to turn with me. First Kings chapter eight. I'm going to read the prayer of dedication that King Solomon prayed after he realized. Think about all the work to get this thing built. He dedicated seven years of his life. He organized all these people and all these resources, and it's just an, an amazing feat. 
and he humbles himself. It says that he's literally on his knees and his hands are up and his face is on the ground. And this is his prayer as he's dedicating the temple of the Lord. Verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire assembly of Israel. So the whole nation is watching him. He spread out his hands toward heaven and said this, follow with me. Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above or on the earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. He's giving God the glory. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. Remember, there's that if. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, listen to his humility here. The heavens, even the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? He's being humble. He's saying, this is the most amazing place on planet earth to date. And he's saying, why God, would you even dwell in this thing? Of course it is amazing. And, and we put a lot of work into this thing, but he is humbling himself before a holy God and saying, even the heavens can't contain you. Why in the world would you dwell in this box? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, listen to the heart of Solomon, man. It's awesome in this place in his life. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, the place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they've done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocent. When, you, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you and when they turn back to you, give praise to your name praying and making supplication to you in this temple. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. I mean, you hear this. It's this pattern of behavior of he knows that the, the people of Israel are going to sin. He knows they're going to fall short, but he's asking the Lord for blessing and grace and mercy to fall on them when they call on his name and they show up in that place to make sacrifice and to tell the Lord that they're sorry. He knows that God is capable of being merciful 
Man, he, he is dialed in on the heart of God right now. When famine, verse 37, or plague comes on the land, he knows it's going to happen. Or, br- or blight, or mildew, locusts, grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, he knows it's going to come. It happens in our day too. And when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people in Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts. For you alone know every human heart. That's comforting. So that they will fear you all the time that they live in the land that you gave our ancestors. As for, so he's talking about the people of Israel. He goes on. He's praying, man. He's on his knees in the temple, praying. As for the foreigner who doesn't belong to your people, Israel, he's got a heart for the nations now, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Man, I love this. He's not just asking for a blessing on his life. Or on the nation of Israel, he's saying, Lord, when we do this thing, when this temple has gone up and the ark has gone in and the spirit of God is dwelling, people are going to know. It's going to be obvious that God's doing something and and they're going to ask and may, may they come to know you is what he's saying. May they know that this house I have built bears your name, not Solomon's name. When your people go to war, against their enemies, wherever you send them. And when they pray to the Lord toward the city you've chosen and the temple I built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. I underlined that. You'll see it four other times in the remainder of this prayer. When they sin against you, there is no one who does not sin. Man, I like that. I think we got some people in today's world that struggle with the idea that they're sinners. Some of them are Christian, some of them are non-Christian, but either way, man, sin is a reality. That's a part of what was being discussed today here in the whole point of the story of me telling you guys and preaching about Solomon. Sin does and is going to happen, but what you do about it makes all the difference. Bear with me. And you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, that's what we do when we sin, right? We repent and we ask God for forgiveness. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, that's repenting. We turn back to Jesus with all of our heart and soul, not some of it, all of it. In the land of their enemies who took them captive and they pray to you toward the land that you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and again uphold their cause. And forgive your people who've sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they've committed against you. And cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and the plea of your people, Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry to you. For you singled them out 
He singled out the nation of Israel to be a special people to fulfill God's purpose. He's singling out you and I in the church age to be of specific design to share the message of Christ. So he's singling us out too. He's singling us out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. Listen to this. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplication of the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises have he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws that he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he again may uphold the cause of his servant, and the cause of his people, Israel, according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees, obey his commands, as at this time. Man, the dude was praying. He was intently praying before the Lord, and this man, King Solomon's heart, was on fire in this moment in his life. He could not have been doing a better job of leading the people at this time. The Lord in verse 1 of chapter 9, skip to me there, skip with me there. When Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and it achieved all that he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time. So the king, this is one of the reasons why King Solomon is so accountable for his life. God literally visited him twice. This is the second time. As he had did to him at Gibeon, and the Lord said this, I've heard the prayer and the plea that you've made before me. I consecrated this temple which you have built. By putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will always be there. God putting his spirit in the Holy of Holies when that ark went in was validation that God said, good job, Solomon. That was his seal. As for you, and again, underline this, if, this if is these two letters in the scriptures are so important. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as your father David did and do all I command and observe my, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. And here it is again. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble, and it did. 
all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? The people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord has brought the disaster upon them. And rest assured, it's all downhill from here for King Solomon. He gives up some of the land uh, back to Hiram. So he wanted to offer a gift to King Hiram for sending all of the wood from Tyre and Sidon. And he, in, 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 in uh, the scriptures, it says here, at the end of the 20 years, okay, seven years building the temple, 13 years building his personal palace, it says that he wanted to give a gift to Hiram. In verse 12 in chapter 9, though, but when Hiram went from Tyre to see the towns that Solomon gave him, he was completely displeased with them. Solomon gave him the, the junk of the country as a gift. All of a sudden, you can start to see that this pride starts to creep in to King Solomon. Literally, the man that was praying on the floor of the temple, facing the Holy of Holies with all the assembly of Israel behind him, with, he literally had the bent ear of God as he's praying, the blessing over the chosen people is now starting to slip. Queen of Sheba comes to visit him in chapter 10, and she kind of builds his pride up. She'd heard about, oh man, this King Solomon, <clears throat> what a guy. I never heard of such a guy. I got to go see it for myself. So she pays him a little visit, and boy, did he impress, right? She really puffed him up. And uh, the weight of his gold was, was more than even nations could handle. So his splendor was, was uh, elaborate. He, he continues this excessive lifestyle. He takes for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines, okay? That, uh, oh, I can only handle one. I can barely handle that. God love her, man. I love you, Molly. She is amazing. But I don't need to. Uh, I, it, would it would take me down. But man, he had 700 and he had another, a concubine is more of like a, it's, a, it's like a, what's the right term for that? It doesn't really matter. But it's like a legal servant. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a contracted uh, laborer, a contract, a wife on contract. Uh, what a deal. So, um, and that's, so in chapter 11, you'll, you'll read in, in, in verses 10 and 11, it says, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods. Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. He did not. Remember that if, that God's blessings and God's eternal favor on Solomon were contingent? If he followed the Lord, if he obeyed his commands, if he followed his decrees, Solomon's not doing it. So the Lord said to Solomon, this is in chapter 11, verse 11, since this is your attitude, remember, whose choice is it? Solomon's. We have free choice. And you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, and I love this, God is gracious. Even though judgment is coming on Solomon and on his family, God is still has a touch of mercy. He says, nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it during your lifetime. 
I will tear it out of the hands of your son, though. And he's talking about Rehoboam. God raises up uh, after this uh, through verse, I'm sorry, through chapter 11, God raises up these three adversaries. And I, I, this is a hard word to preach, but I ask you, has God raised up an adversary for you? It doesn't say that Solomon brought this about himself. He did, but God raised up three men specifically, and they're listed in detail. Hadad the Edomite, Razon the son of Elida, and Jeroboam the Ephraimite, one of his own family of Israel. God raised these three men up to make things miserable for Solomon, to get his attention. Has God raised up an adversary to you, and is he getting your attention? That's a question only you can answer. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, goes on, and I I won't continue to to drag us through the uh, remaining chapters in 1 Kings. It's fascinating. You should read it. But Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He ends up inheriting the kingdom after Solomon dies. Remember, God promises Solomon he'd give him a long life if he followed his commands. Well, he didn't follow his commands, so he died sharply. And Rehoboam takes over, and Rehoboam, just like God had promised, inherited a mess, and he made it even worse. In fact, Rehoboam was so prideful, he was even worse than Solomon. He, when asked if he was going, uh, what he was going to do about taxation uh, on the people, because Solomon had placed a heavy burden. He built up this amazing kingdom, but he placed a giant burden on the people with taxes and labor, etc., And the people, the elders, were looking for some relief when Solomon died. And so they were counseling with Rehoboam, and they said, Hey, bro, your dad really put a heavy weight on everybody, man. Like, like everybody's, like, worn down. And Rehoboam is like, oh, well, okay, I hear that. But you know what he says? He said, my pinky finger is fatter than my dad's waist. And you think it was bad when Solomon was king. You just wait to see what I do to the people. Like, whoa, man, I thought about titling this, don't, don't get a fat finger. <laughs> he, was, he said, my pinky finger is fatter than my dad's waist. You just wait to see how bad I'm about to tax the people. So it was bad. It was doom and gloom. And this is a sad story because, man, I get excited to think about Solomon and all of his glory 12,000 horses, 4,000 stables, man, hundreds of leading men. I mean, just. He is uh, inspiring as a leader and as a person, man. And, and frankly, I, maybe it's just my flesh, but I would be really curious what a day in the life would be like during, to be Solomon in all of his glory. But man, it's sad when we look to see what his decision-making was like after he, 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 his life just literally went like this and like this. And so... Well, where do we stand? I, I, I believed with all my heart, God said, preach on this. So here I am. But what do we learn? Number one, if you're taking notes, they're not on the board. If you're taking notes, number one, what do we learn from this? That number one, the blessings of God are immeasurable. And like, we see that with Solomon. It just literally immeasurable, the blessings that had fallen on Solomon's life. And there's no reason God has not brought some of that or much of that upon many of you here today. I, in fact, 
when I begin to recollect and think about all the good things that God has done in my life, they are immeasurable. I can't possibly write them all down. Even if I wrote in size two font, I couldn't fit them on these three pieces of paper front and back. God has been so good to me. The blessings of God are immeasurable. Number two, God's promise to Solomon is the same as you and I. God promises if you follow my commands, you do what I've asked you to do, you live the life that I've called you to live, similar blessings will be yours. The same promise to Solomon is the same to you and I. And here's the sobering truth, though. Point number three. The penalties of walking in disobedience are just as severe. They are. They're just as severe. The way that God dealt with Solomon, he will deal with you the exact same. He will deal with me the exact same. And the big idea here, and you're not going to write this down, it's kind of long. But I believe, because I'm still going, well, Lord, why am you having me preach this on a vision sermon on Sunday morning? We were in the book of Revelation, and I was talking about kind of the five-fold transformed life last week, and man, here we are talking about Solomon just crashing and burning. The big idea, though, is I just feel God wants me to encourage us that his blessings are about to abound in this church body. They already are, and they're going to continue. The, the blessed hand of God is falling on OPCC and the people of it. And, and I think that we're going to enjoy the splendor of that. But, but, may we fear him in the sincerest of ways. That's why I read chapter 8, the prayer of dedication of Solomon in the, in the temple. Like, I, that was like my heart. I want that to be our heart as a church. I want that to, I want us to be like that and in that place where we're so humble and we're saying, Lord, we've sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned. She's sinned. He's sinned. We all have, Lord, but we're sorry. We really are. And we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus died on the cross to save us specifically from that sin. And we repent of it. We tell the Lord we're sorry, and then he gives us freedom. And we walk in that. But we have got, I feel God is telling us to watch out for ourselves. I think too many people, I hear it from close friends, I hear it from family members, I hear it from neighbors. We as a people have too much confidence in ourselves. We think we're more upright than we really are. And we think that we got it going on a little bit more than we really do. God is saying, just watch out for yourselves a little bit. There's men in the crowd saying, oh, I'm, a one, I'm a one woman man. You know, I'm a one woman man. I love my wife, been married 40 years and blah, blah, blah. And that dude's watching porn on a weekly basis. You're screwed up, dude. Like, cut that out of your life. Like, you're not doing the things that you say you think you're doing awesome because you married your wife for 40 years and you didn't marry another woman or didn't get 700. 
but not true, bro. You're cheating on her every time you watch that crap. And that's what God is saying, man. You got to watch out for yourself. And I'm not talking about judging other people. I'm talking about right here, me. Shay Haddock has got to watch out for himself. Man, things are awesome in my life. Pastor in a church, running a business, a wife and four kids and a house and a farm, big deer on the wall and a cute dog. It's awesome. But dude, I've got to be careful. I've got to watch out, man. Like, there's not everything in my life is in order. Don't get too comfortable. Seek God daily and humbly walk before him, or else you too will end up like Solomon. And so my prayer is that, Lord, just keep us obedient. Keep us on the high place. Keep us on our face with our hands up to the sky. We need you, Jesus. I love that song that Sean and the band sang. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. We don't always live like we need Jesus every hour. Pray with me. Lord, I'm humbled before you. I thank you for the word. I thank you for the story that you chose to preserve for us about King Solomon and his life. May we learn from that. May we guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we humble ourselves. And we do desire to live in an incredibly abundant life. We already are living it. May we be watchful, though, and thankful that when we do screw it up, Jesus You're there when we repent and believe. You're there to save us from that sin, Lord. And you have power through the Holy Spirit that lives in those who have put their faith in Christ to live beyond that sin. Go and sin no more, Jesus said. May we live like that, Lord. Would you ignite a passion in us? And like Solomon, he didn't just care for himself or his family or the people of Israel, Lord. He had a heart for all of his neighbors. May we do the same, Lord. Help us reach our neighbors here in Overland Park. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.